This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. So in this episode of Becoming Educated, I am joined by Kat Howard. Kat is a former senior leader at a leading high street bank who then decided to switch career to teaching. Kat is now a senior leader in a school in Northamptonshire and the founder of Lit Drive, an international not-for-profit organisation that supports English teachers. Amongst all of this, she is also a teacher of English and the author of the excellent Stop Talking About Wellbeing, A Pragmatic Approach to Teacher Workload. Kat, thank you so much for joining me. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me, Darren. Not a problem. So just to just to start us off, could you please share a little bit about your journey through your career uh, and what led you to, to write your book, Stop Talking About Wellbeing? Mm, um, so, yeah, before I came to teaching, as you said, um, I kind of worked for an extended period of time or, um, as a senior leader um, within the financial sector. Um, I was responsible primarily for um, the recruitment and retention um, within the within the sector um, and kind of monitoring what that looked like. Um, it kind of, it cost us a great deal of money to um, it us between ten and fifteen thousand pounds to hire and train staff. So it was incredibly important to us that that we retained those staff. Um, so it's always kind of something that's that I've been interested in. Um, and then following that, um, I went back to university when I decided that I wanted to retrain to become a teacher and um, and worked for a public sector um, union um, during that time as well. Um, I kind of came to teaching um, quite late on. Um, I trained as a single parent as well, which um, I found quite tricky. Um, and I found several elements of the training process to becoming a teacher um, and teaching itself a little bit frustrating or sometimes the the dots didn't quite connect with things that we were doing and um, the things that didn't make sense to me. Um, I find I often describe teaching as a little bit of a a broken franchise. I find it interesting, um, quite fascinating actually, how we can, um, one school can be five miles down the road from another school and doing very, very different things and treating staff very, very differently. I I suppose my early frustration was um, in teacher training to kind of look around the room in July and realise that um, a lot of people weren't there anymore. Um, And it was it was incredible to me, you know, that I was kind of investing quite a lot of money. I'd taken a massive pay cut in order to retrain to be a teacher. It was quite a financial strain for that year. And I I really couldn't believe that, you know, that the that people would be in a position to go, actually, this is so hard. I'm going to overlook that financial cost and leave anyway part of the way through the year. So it was kind of alarm bells for me at that point. Um, And then later on through um, my connection with the teaching community and Teacher Five a Day, which um, Martin Rear, I mentioned in the book, Martin Rear founded um, a few years ago. Hearing some of the stories um, from different teachers and different teacher narrative around their treatment in school and particularly the treatment around, you know, if they had personal circumstances or were under a particular strain um, and this a kind of constant message that was coming through these stories this narrative of a real kind of lack of emotional intelligence I think on our part or systems that didn't support those teachers um, kind of led me to um, initially put 10,000 words together um, and then go maybe I should turn this into a book so um, yeah this is this is kind of where we are now. Um, we're going to kind of cover <laughs> different as I said to you off air there was just so much in your book that we could have talked so hopefully we're going to try and try and get through a, a couple of things in your book and, and really 
um, double down on some of the some of the things that you've said uh, and share because his well being is is very current and mm. everywhere and it's so important for us especially in in times like these. Um, mm-hmm. So, just what is teaching to you and and why did you choose to teach? And 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 also on top of that, why is teaching like no other job? Um, I think probably the reason I came to teach was um, I'm quite pig-headed and my A-level English teacher um, kind of laughed at me when I said I wanted to be a teacher. So um, I like to prove people wrong. Um, it took me probably a good um, what, 15 years, maybe a little bit less than that, to um, to to eventually come around to the idea of, um, of coming to teaching to prove her wrong, but I got there in the end. Um, I think... Um, teaching to me is is uh, I don't really necessarily buy into this idea of it's a calling it's a vocation but it's so rewarding um but it is at the same time a bit of a double-edged sword I think in order to um be truly invested into it you really kind of love teaching and understand what teaching is about um you have to be quite self-critical it's one of those um those professions where um it's, it's endless there is no end point there's no sense of mastery with teaching um because you're always dealing with human beings so you're always dealing with this idea of difference every cohort is different every child you come across is different and it's 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 i think compelling for most of us because we're trying to figure out a puzzle that can't be solved that's what's so exciting about it um but at the same time um it's quite tough on us to be constantly self-critical and to constantly feel like we are achieving and we're recognizing those milestones in our career and those achievements when there is no end point that's a that's a tricky business and so you know we i think teaching attracts those people that are self-critical and there are there are kind of there there are best people in the profession but at the same time we have to look after them because they're so self-critical of themselves um so that double-edged sword i think makes tricky um teaching like like no other job it's it's a tricky business it, it's, it certainly <laughs> is it's ever changing and um, you wrote kind of early in the book that nearly three quarters so 75 percent of teachers say their workload is having a serious impact on their physical health why is this and what can teachers do to to help themselves yeah i think we underestimate the connection between our mental and physical health um i view kind of mental physical health almost as the outcome of everything else that we do so instead of seeing it as um, something that we have to tick a box for something that we have to I think it's just about um, making sure that we yeah that we're mindful of it but um, I think the timing obviously at the moment I think is um, it's it's really apt if we're thinking about um, impact on mental health of everything that's going on in the media at the moment um, and and how actually your physical health, how much sleep you're getting um, and I say this as a mother of three with two tiny ones um, can be a make or break for you in in how capable you are, how resilient you are in, in dealing with things. I know if I've had, I mean, we, we worked out last night, I think my last four nights sleep was the 17th of January. So that's exciting um, where we haven't had broken sleep. And you recognize I'm very, very hyper aware as to how resilient I am, how capable I am, how capable I am of taking feedback or criticism if I've not had a great deal of sleep. And so actually we can, you know, we can sit there and, and, and kind of turn our noses up at the, uh, you know the throwaway comments of you need to drink enough water you need to get enough sleep um you need to look after yourself but actually um it makes you far more resilient as a human being to be to be mindful of those things in order to kind of to deal with your day-to-day um there's also a great deal of emotional labor emotion what we call emotional labor if you have a look there's a, a piece of research actually i shared at a, a recent conference around this about the the burden that we pick up as teachers um and the burden that people generally pick up from each other so every time you speak to each other about 
about um, you know an issue that you've had or something that's that you've struggled with um, you're picking you're, you're picking up a little bit of that burden a little bit of that that um, that kind of emotional labor that emotional burden of other people um, and I th- again I think it's not about avoiding that necessarily it's just about being mindful of it being aware of it that actually you, you need to kind of you need to counterbalance that with looking after yourself a little bit because we we are taking on the problems of other people both children and teachers in our day-to-day I've never really thought about that kind of taking on other mm. people's burden, but it, it it definitely rings true when I think about some of the interactions that I, that I've had recently. Um, mm. One bit that I was that I was really fascinated by was the pages where you discussed the summer holidays and and how it how it's actually hard for some teachers. So, mm. what did teachers tell you about about the holidays and how they often found them a lonely time of year? Oh, this is this is such a topic that's really taboo, and it was actually really interesting once I threw the the topic of discussion out there last summer on Twitter. How many people didn't want to openly talk about it, and how many DMs I got rather than open tweets in response? Um, because we're, you know, it, the media perception of teaching is we're in it for the holidays, um, and so if you start complaining about the holidays as a teacher, you know, you're, you're really kind of putting yourself on on the front line there. Um, but actually, um, it was really interesting to see the kind of um the the almost relief that came from the responses of oh my god we're, we're allowed to talk about this this is brilliant um there were so many stories of loneliness which i could really um i remember kind of early years before me to my now partner when i was just with my my son on its own the, the kind of the 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 lack of connection the amount of time you can actually go in the summer holidays if you live alone without speaking to another human being is you know you really have to make the effort to to consciously put yourself out there and, and talk to other human beings um, but also that kind of teachers were talking about the the lack of routine um the lack of connection um loneliness is an epidemic in our country so it's no surprise if you you know put teachers in a situation where um they're on their own for six weeks that that is going to have an impact and um, we also have that kind of slow down from you know, we go a million miles an hour. We work a 60-hour week. So we work, you know, almost double what everybody else in, you know, other sectors is, is doing. And then we expect to be able to bring ourselves to a complete abrupt standstill. And actually that, you know, being able to, to manage that mentally um, is, is, is again, it's quite, it's quite a hurdle. It's quite an obstacle to, to, to get over. And um, I had a lot of teachers acknowledge that as well, that, you know, actually um, it's incredibly difficult to to not feel guilty if you're um if you're enjoy if you're not enjoying the holidays if it's it's a tough time you've also got um teachers who um like me um but lots of other teachers that were um that have non-teaching partners that then the childcare falls to you and um which is we all love our children um six weeks non-stop is a is a pretty tough it's a pretty long time to um to entertain your children and yeah so it was a really nice kind of open discussion and, and lots of dialogue around how actually that's that's incredibly difficult and how we how we manage that no it, it was a definitely powerful part part of the book i mean i'm quite fortunate in it in, in my own kind of family and social network that i, I, mm. play, I play a lot of golf with my friends in the summer holidays because they're also teachers but <laughs> my my good lady will definitely attest to when my holiday starts, she seems to think that I've I, I become a little bit brain dead and, 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 <laughs> and stupid because I've went for, we'll, we go from this such fast paced, ever changing routine into that mm-hmm. kind of just nothing's happening. And well, yeah, I mean, you um, you talked to a teacher 
Um, you talk to a, a, a non-teacher, a normal person, normal human being, um, has a, a nine-to-five job, and you know if they have a rough week, they have a Monday off and they go and get a massage. Or if um, you know if they've um, if they've, they they go to the pub with their friend on a Thursday night, you talk to a teacher, and they're like, "What? You go out on a school night? We're still talking as though you know we're we're 15 years old." Because going out on a thir- going out on a midweek night is a big deal as a teacher because it is so all-encompassing in term time. So. You know. <laughs> it, it, it certainly is. going to bring me on to my, to my next point. Um, mm. You have a great chapter where you discuss uh, imposter syndrome. Um, mm. And it's very fascinating for me because I, 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 I raised the idea of, of myself feeling like I've suffered from a bit of imposter syndrome. I have spent the past year as a, as a middle leader in the school with a whole school responsibility. And kind of at times I've felt like a bit of an imposter with, with the other middle leaders. Um, have you experienced it and, and how do teachers know if they, they are suffering from imposter syndrome? Oh my God, all the time, all the time. Um, and I, I said to a lot of people when the book came out that, you know, half of me wanted to just go and sit in a cave somewhere for three weeks and wait till it was all over. Um, so, yeah, all the time. And I think that I think that's something that you come up against, you know, every, every day, no matter what stage of your career you're at, um, at that, <laughs> that prospect. So I remember when we first finished training, um, you know, somebody so I just feel like somebody's going to walk into my room and go, "What are you? What are you doing?" And uh, you know, hand hand me a P forty five because it's that kind of that fear of, of am I doing the right thing? And you're you're constantly as a teacher having to make those 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 split second decisions all the time about whether you're doing the right thing or not um, for your for your class for your um, for the students in front of you. Um, I th- I think I would challenge you to try and find somebody that hasn't had that experience definitely um of feeling like the imposter in the room um i think that it's like it came back you know when i was talking earlier about dealing with human beings that that's part and parcel of it that um you're constantly going to you know if we start double guessing ourselves and whether we're making the right choices you drive yourself crazy wouldn't you um so i think i think half the battle with imposter syndrome is being aware of it um talking quite openly about it um i spoke at a women ed conference a couple of years ago about this about you know just the the fact that we're open and and talking about it and everybody shares those those feelings actually is um is is probably half the battle in in moving forward and going yeah okay no it's there but um yeah and that's that's again what makes us self-critical what makes us good teachers is that fact that we we question what we do we question ourselves the minute we stop being reflective the minute we stop being you know effective effective teachers so we, we kind of need imposter syndrome as teachers to function unfortunately yes. <laughs> we certainly do and I, and I can totally under, under, understand I'm I'm always impressed by my by my head teacher and even he's spoken about that idea of imposter syndrome and, and it's mm. so fascinating because it, it links hand in hand to what you said earlier about that double-edged sword that we that we have in, in teaching and if we're not self-critical and how it can eat us away but if we're, if we're not self-critical then as you say we've probably lost the battle on teaching there if yeah. we don't do that <laughs> um, moving moving further further on um marking assessment and feedback are, are big contributors to, to heavy mm. workload i mean there's not a teacher in the land that won't talk to you about uh, won't complain about their, their the amount of marking assessment and feedback they do um, you spoke with daisy christadulu i hope i've said her name right there on, yep. on, on that um what did you learn there Oh my lord! Um, Daisy is an absolute um, genius. Um, I, you know, I, I felt I, I, the, the entire time when I was kind of talking to her and doing that interview, I felt bad because I was interjecting so many times with you. Oh my god! Yes, I completely agree. This is, you know, this is eye-opening. Why can't we all see assessment like this? Um, we had a really 
interesting discussion about the fact that marking is completely not designed for what it's actually intended to do in schools that the majority of the time actually what we're doing is is lip is paying lip service and unfortunately because it's it's there's a slightly political edge to marking because you know the fact that it, it needs to be present a lot of people do it with Ofsted in mind or have written policies with Ofsted in mind um what marking is actually designed to do gets lost in translation a little bit there um we had a really interesting conversation about comparative judgment and how much more effective that is as a marking process, not just for the students, but actually as you as the marker, that it's far more satisfying because it's it's accurate, it's more accurate. And so actually, um, for anybody that's kind of carried out any trials um, on um, of no more marking or comparative judgment, it's actually a really satisfying business. If you've ever done that and then done any exam marking for an exam board, you know, the, the, the comparative judgment is almost the joy to, to complete because you feel like that sense of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, you understand that what you're doing by comparing two pieces um, and deciding which one is better, that actually it's such a simple way to decide um, whether a piece of work is effective or not. Um, but it, it's really fulfilling. Um, and so we talked a great deal about that. And, and, and yeah, and about what the future of marking could look like. And I'm actually trying to um, think about the practicalities of that in school around curriculum design at the moment about how actually are we when we're you know including our assessments within curriculum are we actually assessing the right things are we assessing in the right way are we assessing work that was carried out six months ago because if we're not where where are we checking that along the way we've just taught something that maybe we're never going to look at again uh, how are we being mindful of that so it's actually probably left me with loads more questions um than, than answers but in a good way um yeah i'm still kind of um, working my way through that but it was a really interesting conversation no, certainly. I mean, comparative judgment is not something that that really get. We've heard a lot of in in, in Scotland. I think it's the idea, the no more marking website. I mean, I've I've had a look at it and and I still don't know enough about it. But kind of what you say there about it actually being enjoyable is is is, is very interesting. So yeah. I, I think I'll I'll definitely see if I can share that with with some of my colleagues, especially those that that have a lot of more essay based essay based courses. So thank you very much yeah. there. Um, Especially given the given the time now, the next, you went on in your book to write about resourcing, and, mm. and and how that should be collaborative. Could you could you share more on why and how teachers go about doing this and sharing the workload? I think I think um, we need to plan collaboratively, not from a, just a workload point of view, but to make sure that teachers feel a sense of collective purpose um, that you're not just handing over a curriculum and saying here deliver this and that's the end of that but actually we need to feel part of that curriculum design all teachers at some level are are designers of a curriculum and they need to feel involved in that process that's really really important I think in order to feel like you have some sort of autonomy some sort of impact on what you're doing um, it's also about kind of um, making sure that we um, we're not working in isolation at any point because then nobody feels some sort of personal attachment to um to curriculum design because curriculum needs to constantly change if you're one person planning a scheme of learning and then actually we adapt it and respond to what's going on outside in context and things change and we decide that we're not going to use that anymore you're going to be really upset about that because you've spent a long time and you've invested yourself um kind of in isolation on that when actually when it's a collaborative process you're much more open to being fluid and responsive and that's really what what makes an effective curriculum being able to constantly respond to the outside world respond to what's going on respond to how your subjects evolving and um, we need to do that so i think that's why um collaborative 
um, planning isn't just, you know, logistically, practically more useful for schools because it takes less time if you've got more people working on one thing. But actually that that kind of um, responsive curriculum um, relies on it, really, to tell you the truth. So how does, how does that look in terms of that collaborative mm. listening? I mean, do you, would you prioritise department time to just plan a, a series of work together? Or would it yeah. be, be individual teachers buddying up and, and sharing the workload? Yeah, um, with my own experience in mind, so where I am at the Justin School at the moment, we give um, two days to every faculty um, in June um, where the faculties are off timetable together and they have those two days for planning, collaborative planning. So they almost come up with a, a game plan at the beginning of those two days and then work in a room collaboratively, reviewing the curriculum and obviously what they've taught over the last year, but then planning together to put the curriculum, you know, the, the plan resources together for September. Um, we're also looking next year to give them majority of time back to subjects to really kind of invest in subject knowledge driven CPD um, alongside the whole school messages and the whole school vision um, because ultimately you know if we're going to make our teachers experts if we if that's what we're wanting to do we need to allocate the time to do that we need to make the time available to them to do that so yeah I think that's that's absolutely vital um, to to give your teachers that time in schools together I would wholeheartedly that that idea of of teachers becoming experts we didn't we we say that a lot but we never actually give them the time mm. to really do that and it looks nice that you're you're actually doing that there at, at the Dustin School so that sounds really really exciting mm. um, yeah definitely another bit that, that a chapter that I found like totally brilliant because it's it's kind of part of everybody's working culture that is, is emails and how mm-hmm. emails are the biggest burden for teachers in schools um how do we improve that and then to go f- to go a little bit further there mm. how do we also prevent that conversation continuing on on whatsapp uh, yeah, I might actually start with WhatsApp. WhatsApp is really dodgy ground, I think, for, for school policy generally, because it, it's not really incorporated within, within a great deal of um, IT acceptable use policy at the moment. Um, um, it could count social media, so the, the kind of element of, of um, that as well. And so actually, it's really kind of, you know, unmarked territory that we're moving into where departments are, are setting up WhatsApp groups, and um, which can be completely social and harmless. Um, but then can actually eat into the lines start to get a little bit blurred as to you know are we talking about work and we're not talking about work and I think that that leaves you really kind of open really liable to um to to yeah to issues there um I think it's a tricky one because you want people to connect you want people to bond um teachers stay longer in schools where they feel like they belong to a group um, and I think that's really important um a friend of mine who um is a head of department in Manchester she actually has um kind of almost like ground rules for their um for their um, department whatsapp so you know we don't talk about work um and um and yeah it's kind of you know th- these are the things that we don't talk about we don't share anything that you know that you wouldn't that you wouldn't talk about um that you, yeah that you wouldn't talk about outside work so there are kind of really clear rules in place i for one i'm, I'm not i'm not a fan of whatsapp groups so group whatsapps drive me around the bend um coming back to your question around emails emails again probably uh, yeah it's the massive bane of my life um working with um with sam strickland my head who you know will openly rant on a regular basis about emails it was kind of you know it's, it was music to my years when um when i originally went to work at the school and um, i didn't know we we um 
we have no emails um kind of evenings and weekends so we have a cutoff um and that's that's not that you know that you can't physically send an email it's just an agreement amongst staff that that's not what we were doing weekends and holidays as well um it doesn't work for every school and it can be quite a contentious um topic if you throw it out there um uh, in twitter generally um i think it's about agreeing a consistent message so whatever your agreement is as a school and sticking to that because you will have your night bird your your night owl sorry that will want to work at 11 o'clock at night and send an email but on the other side of that you'll have your i get up at five o'clock in the morning and go for a run and then i send all my emails and actually what about the the staff where they're having to to almost temper both of those groups of people you almost become a 24 7 um you know operation um organization and, and that just doesn't work for everybody so i think it's really about being consistent in what you do what you know when do you want your staff to send emails what kind of messages are you putting out there where are you letting um or giving opportunities for your staff to have conversations to talk to each other in real life because actually the more you do that the, the less emails that get batted about people prefer talking to people um what could take maybe one email and um, sorry one conversation takes 70 emails sometimes to resolve so um it's just an easier option isn't it um talking to other human beings but yeah i think it's just about agreeing something that you know that that, every, that works for everybody in your context correct and it takes me on wonderfully on to my next question about you're right about why we should prioritise human connections. Mm. And also you talk about choosing our crowd. Mm. Why is this so important? Um, I have worked with some really negative people. Um, and, that, you know, there's a question as to why. There's always a reason behind that negativity. But actually, it's incredibly damaging, particularly, for I think, for your less experienced teachers. You know, those teachers that, um, you know, the, the NQT sat in the class, in the staff room at lunchtime and you've got the, the jaded kind of, without being too stereotypical, teacher that's been, you know, teaching for a long period of time, telling them how shocking it is and how they need to get out now. <laughs> And it's not necessarily that productive. Um, I am stereotyping slightly. Um, but it's actually quite damaging to generally, I don't just think teachers, surrounding yourself with people where maybe you feel like um, you're being criticised more than you're being um, praised, your achievements aren't recognised. I deliberately surround myself with some really incredible teachers um, because um, that I know won't just agree with me all the time or tell me how great I am um you know I, but I can take criticism from them because um, I understand they explain the value of it and so it's really important to surround yourself with those people that you know that will be honest with you so you, you take you take value in what they're saying but at the same time are the first people that you want to pick up the phone to or, or speak to if um if you've had a brilliant day because that's really important and we spend so much time in isolation as teachers um that the connections that you make in school um are really important you know there's not a great deal of that time so um it's important that that it's the right kind of um of connection the right the right kind of relationships is is key i, I think yeah certainly and it's it's important that we, that we avoid that that negativity and we don't let let it anywhere near us because teaching is challenging <laughs> but it's also unbelievably rewarding and we don't want we, we just don't want it, the profession filled with people that are negative and and Mm. I spoke about that in, in with some of my, my other podcast guests. Moving on to, to an idea that I absolutely love and I want you to share a little bit about it, is this idea of objective rebellion. Mm. How do we objectively rebel? 
Um, well, this kind of comes on the back of this idea of, you know, the, the negative teacher. Um, there's nothing, there's a massive difference between kind of um, being negative and um, and kind of moving forward through that to finding solutions about what you're complaining about, um, which is what I kind of, you know, coined as objective rebellion. Um, objective rebellion is really just questioning something if it doesn't work or questioning the status quo. I think there's a great deal in education around, we've always done it this way. This is the way it's always done. Um, it works. Um, we think it, that's why it works. So we're just going to keep doing it. Um, An objective rebellion is really kind of, yeah, questioning those things. And also as a senior leader, I like to think, um, personally, I like to be challenged. I like to be questioned. Um, you know, I, I may have come across an initiative or want to roll something out or do something. And I've not necessarily seen it from the perspective of the 22 hour a week, um, you know, um, timetable teacher. I might not have seen it from the perspective of, of, of lots of other layers of the, um, the staff body. And so actually, it's really useful for me to be challenged. It's really useful for people to kind of ask questions around what it is that I'm trying to do, because and we, we need to value that, that staff voice, because um, those are the people that are still engaging with you um, and wanting to know why you know, the, the meaning, the value behind what you're doing is it's the people that don't question and just kind of, you know, want to leave that, 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 that aren't as useful because we don't get to find out their feedback. People that are questioning you should actually be really welcomed um, because they help us to improve. They help us to constantly refine and reflect upon what we do. So um, they're our most useful people, I think. They certainly are, and it'll help us get to get to schools that are that are truly outstanding. If we have people that question and are not afraid to question our leaders and the decisions that they make, to mm. make sure that we are doing the right thing with the children at the centre of that. Um, can I can I sum up a few things that we, we spoke about you to in in there? Um, you talk about why it's important to find your fit. So what advice do you give for teachers on aligning themselves with, with the right school for them? Yeah, I spoke to um, a group of early careers teachers um, the other week about this at the University of Birmingham. I think it's almost um, a little bit overlooked in the early years, particularly, and it's really important about kind of finding the right school for you. Um, and we talk about kind of good schools and, and, you know, good practice going on in schools. But actually, there's no one school that everybody could be in and be truly satisfied and happy. We're all looking for slightly different things from schools and what's important to us. Um, I think it's about working out what you want as a teacher what's important to you what do you want to spend most of your time doing um and that kind of you know that 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 does need to happen in its early stages as to you know do you want to go down a pastoral route do you want to are you really interested in teaching and learning are you really particularly interested in working with children with special educational needs because you know it takes you on a very different journey um and different schools as well will support you in different ways so it's kind of about figuring out um yeah where, where the best place is for you um how do we go about it i think um um, our, I think our recruitment process in schools doesn't allow people to find out those questions. You have a, I have a lot of conversations with people that have had interviews and then got into a school and go, this, this is not what I thought I was coming into. This is not what I expected. You know, you hear kind of horror stories of, you know, members of departments being hidden in cupboards or <laughs> they're not there. At, they're not there at the lunchtime, you know, the lunchtime um, sandwiches with everybody else. And then you kind of meet them when you actually start um, where people are so worried about, you know, what, what people might say um, to, to the new recruits, the new candidates, um, which is quite funny. Um, but I think, yeah, it's about asking the right questions, not just on interview, but making sure you re you really kind of notice things on the way around. I kind of um, there's a, um, a chapter in the book about um, scoping out schools 
tools and about kind of how you can do that, the right questions you can ask, particularly um, I wrote that section with with NQTs and trainees in mind because um, we have our own bespoke process of recruitment in teaching that it's very kind of you know hunger games you go in um you know half the people are sent home before they even make it to interview and you've, you've built relationships you're all sat in the same room like you know big brother um and um i've swapped numbers with people that i've been on interview with and then wave goodbye to them at lunchtime um and so yeah it's it's about making the most of that really kind of um intense time that you're in school on interview um and to actually remember that that you're interviewing them as much as um, they're interviewing you you're figuring out whether it's right for you um and not to feel under pressure i think as you do as a trainee to just go oh god i've got a job interview so yeah this this will do i'll just say yes no matter what actually make sure that it's the right place for you um because that's so important it can, it can make a big difference in, in debts sorry it can make a big difference in then how you go about the rest of your career depending on what type of school you're in and yeah. what, the, what the culture is so so how then do we actually create people-friendly schools um i think that the future of um kind of our retention you know or, or dealing with this retention crisis that, that you know is on the horizon um is really being um a bit more up to date with every other sector and talking about flexible working um it's not necessarily flexible working in that we need to you know incorporate part-time working for lots of people but it's just about being mindful of the fact that people are people before they're teachers um you know and so we talk i talk about people-friendly schools and i give lots of kind of case studies and examples not just of the, you know, the stereotypical, um, you know, I've just mother with a child that need, that wants to work three or four days a week, but actually um, there are lots of different people that require flexible working. Um, that could be a job share, that could be somebody caring for an elderly relative, um, it could be um, potentially a temporary um, position that they're in, um, and how are we actually accommodating for those people? It might be the fact that we accommodate for those people winding down to retirement. You've got your expert teachers that have been in the job for 25 years years well, why are we not reducing their timetable and prioritizing curriculum design because they're our experts they're brilliant people to be designing curriculum and and i think it's just being a bit more savvy with the way that we approach um flexible working in schools is definitely going to be the future if we're if we're going to keep good people and have a little bit less of a, a kind of bums on seats approach to recruitment of saying okay well we'll take this person because they work five days a week um, when actually there was somebody sat there that could work three days and was absolutely fantastic um, and yeah, just just being a, a bit more savvy with with our approach. I think. So I'm pretty. I think I heard or read somewhere that there's over twelve thousand trained teachers that are currently not in schools. It's two hundred two hundred and fifty thousand. Two hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah. That is yeah. absolutely incredible. Could you imagine how how much time you'd actually have as a professional mm. to to improve your practice if we got all those people into schools and, and mm. used their skills and, and didn't put their skills to waste um, and almost yeah and almost 30 percent of those uh, of those leaving teachers are are women between 30 and 39 so the majority of those those teachers that leave are because they find that they can't parent and teach together they're having to make a compromise and pick one over the other so that's, yeah, think, that's such a big loss to, to our profession, mm. such a big loss of talent. So hopefully in, in, in years to come or hopefully soon we can we can fix that, especially as this idea that you mentioned earlier about flexible working and job sharing, there's, there's more and more of that actually popping up. So hof, mm. hopefully that continues. Um, a couple more questions before we move on to, to our final three. And, to, and to, quote, to quote you again from your book, 
Um, you wrote that you would like to propose a manifesto that we as a profession will only be in a fit state to provide the level of education that children are entitled to if we hold staff in the highest regard within our schools. How do we do that? Um, I think it is about realising that you, um, and I think we forget this sometimes, you cannot teach, you cannot hold a school. School is nothing without the people in it, without the, the, the staff body, um, without your teachers. And I think it's going back to that idea of making sure that we are developing subject experts, um, that we're giving teachers autonomy over the things that um they, they want to have autonomy over. Um, I think a really interesting research report that came out of the NFER um, autonomy is really exciting. Jack Worth at the NFER is doing really interesting things with that um, in conjunction with the TDS to work out, okay, well, teachers don't want autonomy, funnily enough, shockingly, over things like behaviour management systems and deciding what punishments fit which children. They don't want to do that. It's not what they came into teaching for. They're intellectual academics who want to talk passionately about this subject or think about their subject or talk to other teachers about their subject and the more time that we can give to, to staff to do that um, which is why I think you know curriculum is 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 everything um, and subject knowledge and CPD is everything the more time we can give to, to people to do that the better they will feel about coming into work every day because they feel part of something it excites them um, to to talk about inspires them to talk about their subject um, and I th yeah, I, th I think that really is the key to kind of um, to to improving our profession as a whole. If we're going to to hold the the teachers, you know, as, as the pr most precious resource in the building, it it certainly is the most the most valuable resource, and we are we are the experts. And I, th I think that yeah, that manifesto of of really holding staff to the highest regard is definitely something that we need to get a lot better at. Mm. Um, just before we move on to our final three, and, and kind of that brings us to the end of talking talking about your book. I mean, I could have asked about fifty thousand <laughs> more questions. It was just so fascinating. But I wanted to, to, to share a little bit about Lit Drive. I'm a mm. I'm a teacher of physical education, so I, I I have no reason to have <laughs> ever heard of it. But um, how did that come about? Because it, it is now seems to be an essential group for for many English teachers, not just in in the UK but also internationally and. And just to steal a little bit from from your podcast chat with Jamie Tom, it, you, you have over fourteen thousand um, subscribers or members, and you run thirty annual regional events every year and a peer coaching program. That seems very very impressive. Um, yeah, so Lit Drive kind of came about um, Team English, which is an online community um, on Twitter um, that we kind of use the hashtag and um, that Nikki Carlin and Becky Wood um, created between them almost as a, a support mechanism really for the um, English teaching community. Um, and we had a shared Dropbox, which um, Freya O'Dell and Fiona Ritson, um, I have to give credit for because did an incredible job, kind of um, supported and, and coordinated and did all the kind of admin for. Um, um, what would happen periodically is um, a teacher who maybe wasn't as Dropbox savvy would delete the lot and then we'd have to kind of re recover it and start again and it became this kind of ongoing um, either that or people would want to be added at, you know kind of four o'clock in the morning I would get emails saying can you add me to the Dropbox and I was thinking oh, why why are people in a position in our profession where they're having to look for resources at two three four o'clock in the morning this is really actually quite you know quite saddening um, so I got really bored on maternity leave and designed a website 
website and um, and so that we could have a sharing platform research sharing and resource sharing platform for English teachers um, yeah we're now over I think it's 50 about 15,000 now um, and we've um, just taken on some new regional advocates to run our regional CPD events um, so I think we're just over 40 and then we run our annual peer coaching program as well for um, English teachers where we pair them up based on their their CPD needs um, but it, it, it really is um, yeah it's a kind of you know monster in itself now that um that that's self-operating um but it really is to drive that that importance of subject communities and subject knowledge and like i say i think particularly as an english teacher um you're given a book and you go okay can you teach this book please if you just read it you'll be fine and you'll know everything that you need to know to teach about it um and and you're going to do that in your own time as well and it's moving away from that and really kind of you know developing people mastering their subjects through having those conversations with each other and particularly on a local level um is vital if we're going to um going to make sure that we have experts in the classroom teaching children absolutely if we can support teachers to to develop that subject knowledge and and, and help them in their classroom practice that would yes. be massively beneficial for for teacher quality just one little, little note of that do you know if 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 lit drive is, is in scotland um I'm having conversations with the University of Glasgow at the moment. So if um, actually a little plug, if you know any Scottish teacher um, in the Glasgow area that teaches English, that would be really, really interested. I know that um, I know Katie at the University of Glasgow is just dying um, to be involved and support that. So, um, yeah, definitely. Um, please get in touch if you if you teach English in Scotland. We'd love to have you. Definitely. I'll, I'll certainly pass it on to <laughs> as many people as I know um, just before I move on to my, to my final three questions that, I've, that I ask everybody on the podcast could you um, share with, with the listeners where they could find your book and where they could find you and a little bit more about you and the work that mm. you do um, yep so you can find me on Twitter at SaysMiss um, I also blog um, www.saysmiss.wordpress.com um, about all sorts really um, the book is currently available via um, Junkat um, my publishers as well as kind of all your, your usual outlets as well um, and um, at the moment obviously with the current state of affairs I don't know where I shall be appearing in person um, next but um, um there are things in the pipeline and discussions taking place at the moment about online alternatives for um um, particularly for lit drives so watch this space on that front brilliant thank thank you very much and and i think uh, i've i've watched watched kind of yeah your work on twitter as of late and people talk very highly of you it's when you speak at events and so on so thank you (laughs) i look forward maybe one day i'll hopefully get to see get to see you speak in person that's Um, really kind thank you so and and also um i i've said it a couple of times already i i I took notes on just about every single page in your book Um, (laughs) it took me a lot longer to read than other ones because it was just i just read it and just think that it's just so relevant for teachers and and a lot of the things that you that you wrote i kind of are kind of things that, that I've either thought about or not thought about and it was just so fascinating so I'd encourage it, any teacher to give that give that a little bit of a read um, so on to my, to my final three now the, the first mm. question I have there is what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career? Oh 
No, you can't ask an English teacher to pick a favourite book at all. I, this was probably, um, you know, the, the one I struggled with the most, to tell you the truth. Um, it probably changes every year, to tell you the truth. Um, yeah, I, I read a lot, especially um, teaching books. Um, as far as something that's probably had an impact on me the most, um, I'd say um, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Um, she um, she worked at Google and she did a TED Talks called Radical Candor. It's basically all about kind of um, having conversations with people developing people uh, managing people uh, without being really mean um, and you know being honest giving honest feedback without without being a horrible person so I, I, t- I take a lot away from that and I probably um, I hope breathe um, a, a lot of what I've read from that book um, in the conversations and um, and the discussions I have um, every single day so that's definitely um, yeah definitely changed probably my outlook on on um, connections with people professional relationships with people a lot yeah it's fantastic. I'm going to going to give that. You see, there was a TED talk for that. Yeah, Kim Scott. She um, yeah, she did a TED talks, and then she's kind of um, written a book as well. And there's lots of kind of anecdotal examples that she gives of of the times that she's done a disservice to people that she's managed through um, not being honest with them. So yeah, it's really interesting. Brilliant, definitely. I'll I'll, I'll give that give that a give that a look, especially if it's a video first. Mm. <laughs> if you could give one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? Um, I think this is really a really tricky business um, at the moment um, because, to be quite honest, my go-to um, for that answer was um, not to kind of um, not to isolate yourself, which I know is is really um, really pertinent right now. Um, and I think um, that keeping connections um i'm trying not to make it too relevant to the time but i definitely think that keeping connections is absolutely key making sure you're having conversations with people make sure you're surrounding yourself um, with the right people is is so important to um helping you improve as a teacher um, making sure that you you have those really deep meaningful professional relationships with people where you're talking about stuff that gets you excited about teaching um is is ultimately what's going to keep you in the profession the longest I think so. I think that's key. I totally agree with that, and it goes back to what we what you were talking about earlier about choosing your crowd and finding your fit. Um, mm. Final question, and, and something that really really fascinates fascinates me: What do you think gets in the way most of, of just great teaching in our classrooms? Um, I think I think ego. To tell you the truth, um, I think that we we don't necessarily train um we train great teachers who then become leaders and we don't necessarily train those people to become great leaders and so there's almost that we do a disservice to those people that become leaders of people managers of people by not demonstrating to them how to effectively build people up and how to effectively um you know develop other other people within a team and so when I say ego it probably sounds a little bit negative but actually I just mean that what happens is that you become a great teacher and you go okay I'm a leader now because I'm a great teacher um all these ideas aren't mine so I'm gonna I'm just gonna rip them all up and I'm gonna put my own stuff in there because I know that my own stuff works um when actually I think it's more about kind of listening to the people around you um that that will be kind of you know doing the work um doing this 22 hour week timetable and everything else and and listening to what it is that they think works and spending your time i think as a leader um i i i'm really mindful and i have to consciously do this because i'll 
talk the back end off anybody um of listening more than i talk of really trying to actively listen um to people when they're giving me feedback when they're telling me when they're being honest with me about processes um is so key um and we need to do a lot more of that if we're if we're going to get better um especially the the further up you, you go through the kind of the chain in a school i think is is really important Thank you very much for that, and I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you so much for for giving me giving me so much of your time and no and, and just being so wonderful for the Becoming Educated podcast. No, oh, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time, teach with joy. <laughs>